You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 30, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Whether you're a repeat listener or a new listener, thank you so much for joining me today. We're going to have a great conversation. If you're a new listener, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast player, whatever that might be. The show is free. I'll try and keep this introduction short today because it's a little bit longer episode, but I think it's well worth it. Uh, We're going to have a very interesting discussion today about physician suicide with, mm, I'd say, somewhat famous (laughs) Dr. Pamela Weibel, certainly more famous than I. She has a number of TED Talks that are available online to watch. Uh, She's written two books, and she has... uh, become somewhat of an expert on accident on physician suicide. We're going to discuss the prevalence of physician suicide, the causes, what Dr. Weibel does to help people, and in uh, reversal a little bit today, she's going to interview me for about 15 or 20 minutes as we discuss the specific role uh, for anesthesiologists in this puzzle of uh, suicide. Uh, Whether you are aware or not, and actually it's far more prevalent than I thought, the, the rate of physician suicide is almost three times the general population rate. So this is, I guess you'd say, an epidemic, and that's why it's so important for us to discuss this, whether you're a physician, you know someone who's a physician, uh, or you see what physician. I think these are important things, and they're tips we provide for all these sorts of people, depending where what your role is uh, in your contact with the healthcare system and how you can help people. As usual, the show notes will have all the links to the things we talk about on the show, prior episodes that we discuss, Dr. Weibel's personal webpage, her contact form for those who are uh, either want to get a hold of her, want to join her email list, or who are having thoughts of hurting themselves. And, uh, and this is one of the things she sort of does on, I guess you'd say, on the side. Uh, that's a great service that she provides for people. And uh, I'd like to direct you then to the paradox.com slash 030. That's P-R-A-D-O-C-S. You can also obviously go to the Patreon page where you can get access to bonus content if you become a patron supporter of the show. All the money raised there goes towards the production and promotion of the show. You can visit that at patreon.com slash theparadox. That's obviously P-R-A-D-O-C-S. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Pamela Weibel in a discussion on physician suicide. Enjoy. So welcome. I'm here with Dr. Pamela Weibel, my new friend, who's a family physician born to family physicians. She's out in Oregon. She was warned by her, by her parents, as are many of the people I work with who are the children of physicians, to not become a physician and to not pursue medicine. Uh, and then she soon discovered why, because to heal her patients, she first had to heal her profession. She was fed up with assembly mind medicine, and then she went in and held town hall meetings and invited citizens to design their own clinic, which is what she operates now since 2005, her community clinic. And it's inspired other Americans to create clinics of their own nationwide. Her model's been taught in medical schools and featured in the Harvard Pu- School of Public Health. And she's written a number of books, 
pet goats and pap smears and physician suicide letters answered. So when not treating patients, Dr. Weibel devotes herself to medical student physician suicide prevention. This is how I first became aware of her when I interviewed Dr. Stacia Dearman a number of episodes ago when we discussed medical malpractice and the strains it puts on physicians and how sometimes it drives people to have thoughts of hurting themselves. And I watched your TED Talk and I was impressed with your um, sort of how you just tripped and fell into this, I don't know if you call it profession, but I guess a calling. Can you sort of go into, uh, I guess, how you started in medicine? I mean, a little bit in how you became a doctor and then how you ended up sort of in the role you are now. Well, both my parents were physicians, as, as you mentioned, and so I tagged along with them to work in order to spend any time with them. You know, doctors are sort of workaholics. So really the, the childhood memories I have of, of, of being with my parents is mostly at work with them, <laughs> you know? So we weren't going to baseball games and they weren't going to ballet recitals with me. I was just in the morgue with my dad and I thought it was super cool, okay? And uh, my mom's the psychiatrist and so my dad's pathologist. My mom's the psychiatrist and so I I was at state mental hospitals quite a lot. And so I think this, um, I have a philosophy, by the way, that we choose our parents before we're born. So I really feel like I ended up in the perfect Petri dish for diving into physician Uh suicide because um, I'm totally comfortable with death and mental health issues, you know, and, you know, as as a child, I was around suicidal patients and um, dead people a lot. So, um, so then fast forward, of course, I wanted to go into medicine because I just thought it was absolutely fascinating, uh, the, social, the, the impact that you could have in somebody's life. Um, I thought it was intellectually stimulating. It just seemed like a super cool profession. Um, and I don't think I was just doing this to please my parents or anything. I do feel like it was my soul's purpose and I feel called to be a healer. But the thing that startled me is after, you know, 24 years of school, nonstop, straight A student, you know, come to the end of the line and realize that I am being funneled into these assembly line big box clinics to work at seven minute increments, you know, doing outpatient primary care, which I thought was insane. And it actually led to my my 100% occupationally induced depression and suicidal thoughts. Um, and that happened in 2004, after I tried six jobs in 10 years, I kept thinking, oh, well, this is just a bad job. I'll try something else. Oh, I'll try a hospital and clinic, a physician and clinic. I'll work part time. I'll try a migrant farm worker, you know, FQHC, you know, like I tried it all. I tried all the variations of jobs that where I could be an employed physician and they all sucked because um, come (laughs) to realize, you know, part of this is like, duh, I'm actually an entrepreneur by nature. So I don't think I could be a happy employee anywhere. You know what I mean? But that was not part of my college, high school or medical school training. There was never a little survey about, are you by nature an employee, a business owner, an entrepreneur? So I I sort of didn't figure this out until like literally five years ago. But um, the solution for me was obviously not to work for an employer that had very divergent ethics and goals than I had. And so um, I ended up opening my own clinic and that sort of cured my suicidal dark night of the soul crisis. And I've been happily ever after ever since. Okay. Except Mm -hmm. that in, you know, fast forward eight years after opening my clinic, I end up at a memorial service for the third doctor that died by suicide in my small town. And it sort of hit me over the head because when I was suicidal, I thought I was the only suicidal doctor on the planet. I had no idea this was like an epidemic that had been hidden from us for hundreds of years. 
I'll pause now. You yeah. might have a question. <laughs> no, I, I could go on forever. No, and I. So first of all, I think it sounds your your uh, your origin story sounds somewhat like a comic book character, uh, the you know, the product of a pathologist and a psychiatrist, is. Uh, but I, I, this is something we've talked about a number of times in my podcast. I'm sure you're not super familiar with it, but we we uh, we delve into the reasons that there are problems with the healthcare delivery system and and. And when you look at the Physician Foundation survey that came out this year, which I've talked about in the previous episodes, the number one satisfier for physicians is the relationship they have with their patients. I mean, I think it was like 80% of physicians, the number one satisfier for them in the profession is the, the journey they go with their patients. However it might be, I'm an anesthesiologist, so mine is very brief, uh, and you're usually asleep when you're with me, but I have, to, I, have to perf- I have to establish rapport, and I have to convince you in five minutes that I'm going to bring you through, put you in a medically induced coma and bring you out the other end just fine. And so I find that a, that a great challenge and it's, uh, you know, it's, I have to comfort not only the patient, but the family members as well. Uh, and so anything that gets in the way of that is going to be a natural dissatisfier for physicians. And so I think your, your story, at least when you moved away from practicing medicine, the way you didn't want to practice it. Right. I mean, that was one of the, the main drivers of your having trouble I guess emotionally, right? Yeah, it was like 100% related to being bossed around by people with GEDs and lesser education than me that were after short-term <laughs> profit. Yeah, like to work my butt off trying to take care of patients to see a sticky note on my little office door, cubicle or whatever at the end of the day that said, because you had two no-shows, we're adding two more people to your schedule tomorrow. And it's like, wait, you have a GED and you are putting sticky notes on my door to boss me around. This makes no sense, (laughs) you know? And the reason why I would have no shows is not because people don't like me. They don't like your phone system and your parking garage and your, you know, rude receptionists. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, and so these people, yeah. So I was being punished by people with lesser education and less, uh, humanitarian goals than I had. <laughs> um, it's right. just, it sucked. <laughs> I couldn't tolerate well, it and anymore. It, and I think you could, you could almost look at it as it, as maybe it, they're, that they are looking at as a job within a management position at, in any sort of business. And our business is very different than most businesses. I mean, I, there are lots of uh, service related service sector jobs, but they're not ones that have um, such a profound effect on people's, their psyche and, you know, obviously their health and so it's not, you're just, you're not selling it. You're not like the return counter at Macy's or something. I mean, this is a very different sort of, sort of job. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you've gotten into, we'll just go, I jump right into suicide. Cause you know, why not? And um, how did, how did you, I mean, you obviously came to the realization that this was a problem and it's one that we've discussed before in the show. I mean, the, the suicide rate for physicians, I believe is about twice the national average. Well, they say it's 28 to 40 per 100,000. National average is 12.3. So I really think it, it could be close to, you know, nearly four times national average. Depends which numbers you're looking at. But I would definitely say that physician suicide is underreported, miscoded, and, and has been hidden from public view in a way that the suicides among the general public are not so hidden for a lot of reasons. I mean, I think you can see it coming often somebody in the general population who dies by suicide, you know, there's warning signs often. Physicians are literally performing complex surgeries an hour before they kill themselves and they manifest their deaths in ways that can look like accidents. And then of course their colleagues filling out their death certificates for insurance payout and reputation purposes, sometimes just put accidental 
you know, fall or whatever it is, or just car accident, but it was a single car accident with a tree or whatever in the middle of the day. But anyway, so I think we're covering for each other. We're in a professional state of denial that's gone on for over a hundred years. And, you know, we're just now coming out of the stupor as a profession from this denial that we've been in for quite a long time, I would say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm just saying after three within a year um, in my small town in Oregon, where everyone holds hands, sings Kumbaya and goes to farmers markets together. I mean, I just had to think like, what is it like in New York or Chicago or places that people aren't necessarily that happy? You know, like I'm in like the sweet little town in Oregon with like low cost of living and the physicians don't really get sued here. And if they do, they prevail, you know, like I'm in such a nice place, but yeah. I, you know, I, I just couldn't believe that I, it, it was shocking to me. I sat at this memorial service. I started counting on my fingers, how many doctors I personally knew that had died by suicide. And I knew like 10 and I'm in my early forties, you know, in the middle of my career, like, is there a real estate agent that could say right. I lost 10 colleagues to suicide? Is there, I don't know, somebody at Walmart loses 10 people to suicide? What other profession do you lose 10 people to suicide? No, I totally agree. And I, I mean, I'm, and it's funny when she starts, once I, and I, and when I was getting preparing for this interview, I started thinking about for me and I can yeah. think of a number and it's, and, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's again, like you said, some, not something anyone talks about. And, and it's a, I guess you could say it's yeah. an epidemic. I mean, it's not one that is suddenly like happened, but it's been one that's been brewing or right. ongoing yeah. for a while. So, so, so you've, you provide, I guess you'd say an unusual service. I mean, and I, from my impression on going, visiting your website and, and uh, as a side note, everything hits as far as the links to the books you've written and then to the, um, to the site. If any physicians are in trouble or people know people who are in trouble, you can visit uh, Dr. Weibel's website, which will be linked to the show notes page at the paradox.com slash zero 30. Um, it, it doesn't strike me as like that you set out on a business, you know, that this is a, a business plan of yours to like, Hey, I think I'll set up a no. suicide hotline, but that it was, that it was almost like accidental. Like as you learn more about this, you realize there are people who yeah, right. I, help. I firmly like, well, believe no like, I anyone, did right? not go looking for these suicides. These suicides came and found me. I feel like, and I know this sounds really yeah. odd. I don't know if you have like, um, you know, spiritual experiences with patients or whatever, but I mean, I've got a wall in my home office that's covered with pictures of dead doctors who died by suicide and their families are so close to me now. Many of them, I mean, I'm on the phone with, I mean, I feel like I've been like sort of almost adopted into many of their families. And then I feel some of them come to me in dreams. I mean, this stuff is otherworldly, but I, I will tell you for a fact, I did not go looking for this. These people found me and some of them found me, you know, after their deaths, they come to me and I feel like information is channeled through me by way of them. And so for whatever reason, this has happened to me. I think it's just because on as a child I was comfortable with this and and plus you know I don't have kids in my house now I had a foster kid he's often launched you know like I I have dedicated I have OCD so I've really dedicated myself to this topic literally 24 7 in a way that I think most people 
who even love their jobs wouldn't want to do it 24-7. You wouldn't want to do anesthesiology 24-7, you know, and, and be available yeah. all the time. You know, so for whatever reason, I have a passion for this. I think I'm good at it. Like, I'm comfortable. So I just keep doing it. And I know I don't really have a business plan or anything. It's just organic. It's just sort of That's happened. Funny. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I've, and I've talked to this podcast too, you know, I've, we lost our son recently and a few months ago. And so I, no, thank you. Um, and so I can see how people who are looking for answers because, you know, you have answers in the sense that you've seen it before. And, uh, and for people who have, and then to recognize that people get through this and their families get through it. And you've dealt with families who have managed to work their way through this as well. And so, I mean, those are, those are the things that when, um, when we go into medicine, those, I mean, those are the bonds that, mm-hmm. that drive us to medicine. They're not ones that you, that you seek out again. You don't look for, for um, tragedy and suffering, but that is part of the human experience. And so that's definitely part of what makes it, you know, I guess rewarding as a, as a, as a field of study. So you're pretty much like any scientist in the sense that you kind of stumbled upon some things and you've dug in a little bit further and you just sort yeah, of got lost in, the rabbit in this hole sort of, of suicide. Uh, in, yeah. in, as a detective yeah, work. <laughs> yeah. So what, so what have you, what would you say, what would you say you found as the, as the main drivers of, of suicide? I believe there is a clash of uh, expectations when somebody is an idealistic humanitarian pre-medical student who just wants to serve humanity, right, help and heal others, and they come Mm -hmm. smack dab into orientation of medical school, and they're told to sit down, shut up, and take tests and follow the rules, you know, and know your heart and soul is not welcome here. I mean, they could use lip service and say other things their website might look like, you know, gee, we're the coolest medical school ever. But when it comes to like how the whole thing is administered <laughs> through the LCME, AAMC, you know, the rules and regs and all that, it is su- sit down, shut up and get high test scores and know this is not a good time to be pregnant or have a physical or mental health illness because that'll skew our numbers and that'll be inconvenient. And you know what I mean? Like this is not a good time to be human. Yeah. Sit down, get good test scores, make us look good, and know we're you're not allowed to post that on Facebook, and that you're not allowed to complain, and no, you can't. You know, I mean, just yeah, it's a full time job, and we're going to take over your life, and yeah, it's it's like it's almost like being inducted into a cult, okay? <laughs> and so you take these people, yeah, who have their heart and soul in, in the right place, they're the best and the brightest in the country, and you put them into this situation that only gets worse because, you know, starting year three, four and beyond, now they're, you know, they're, they're around death and suffering, you know, and real patients who are dying in front of them. And they're not given any like debriefing or mental health care. You know, you would think you get on the job mental health care for a job like this, but they just sort of expect you to deal with the unexpected three-year-old dying in front of you and move on to the next case. And, you know what I mean? It's like, then you have people that are teaching medical students who've been injured themselves, who have mental health issues like PTSD, and uh, who have been trained in sort of this fear-based training method with pimping and all of that. And so you have a cycle of abuse going on, you know, in which we're never going to extract the best out of these brilliant people that enter medicine when they're so debilitated. 
by the training and the workplace. Yeah. You know, I mean, this whole thing needs to be restructured and humanized. So that's, that's the problem. I think you have somebody with an expectation and then they get into medical school and it's almost like getting hit by a Mack truck. Like it isn't what you expected it would be, you know? Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely true. I, I, I know that the first, the first year of medical school was probably I'm was one of the mm-hmm. one of the hardest years of my life because uh, because I think you know we're all high achievers in whatever we, where we are and then there's a reality that that hits you that you're mm-hmm. alongside other people right. who are the same and um, and the and the expectations are different and uh, you know your friends are off doing whatever yeah. they're doing they're done right. with with yeah. school if you're with college and stuff and so and you've just begun the next journey and um, like yeah I. I, I can definitely see how that, that culture in sort of that, that begins back when you're in medical school and residency is depending what residency you'd go into. I mean, it could be a lot worse or mm-hmm. worse. <laughs> um, and so, and so you have people who are flawed characters who are teaching people and that they're unable to deal with the, the, the problems. So how, so how would you recommend that you, that you, how would you do it differently? I mean, would you, would you still have, I mean, you still have the same types of people going in, right? There's still the same aspirations for becoming mm-hmm. those sorts of doctors. Well, I think that it should be done differently and that like anyone, I'm sure you help people as an anesthesiologist have some informed consent about what goes on so they can agree to being dosed with whatever drug. <laughs> you know what I mean? There, there is informed consent <laughs> right. that is a principle of medical care that every surgical patient obviously has to sign something with an understanding of what's going on. Going on, and that informed consent does not exist for medical pre-medical students and and getting into medical school. They have no idea what they're getting into. They don't understand with their young minds. Really, they're so young. They don't understand even what the debt load is going to mean for them. You know, they don't understand right. yeah. what it means to work as a physician. They might not have any physicians in their family to understand what medical school is about. They don't understand pimping. You know, this is all new to them. So they should certainly be forewarned about the high rate of suicide among medical students and physicians. Because some of them, I, I hear from pre-meds all the time. who want to know, is this the right direction to go? And I already had a suicide attempt or I have panic attacks right now. Or I have a physical illness and I'm in a wheelchair. And it's like, you know, I'm listening to these people and I'm thinking, okay, let's really understand what your motives are. And yeah, this is going to be hard for you. If you already, you know, have, you know, a medical condition or a mental health condition, like they should be alerted in advance what this means for them, you know, for their health, their lifespan. Okay. So that's one part and how I would do it differently. What the other part that's really important that could be enacted immediately is just, we really need to greet each other as human beings and welcome people into the family of medicine and stop with this competitive nature where, you know, you're led to believe your success as a student is going to be based on someone else's failure. You know what I mean? The only way to get ahead is by somebody else falling behind which is terrible. Uh, I got an email once from, a, which I published as a blog, it was so dramatic, from a medical student who was also in the military, and she said that she was less stressed in active sniper fire in Afghanistan than she, than she is in medical school, less stressed. Less stressed in a war zone could die any minute than medical school. Well, you know, I spoke to her on the phone trying to figure out, like, 
how could that be? That seems like it would be more stressful, right? Well, she said, at least in the military, you know that people have your back. Even if you're like slaughtered on the ground, they will bring your body home. You'll have a proper funeral. You'll have the American flag of your coffin. You know, right. you won't be left just in shattered in pieces on the ground, which is how people feel in medical school. You will be left shattered in pieces after a pimping episode or take a leave of absence. Nobody's going to check on you. You know what I mean? Like you are alone. Yeah. You're alone and good luck. You know, and nobody really cares. This is not an environment where you feel totally supported or supported at all by your peers. In fact, if you lose one, I guess that gives you a better chance to get into residency. One less person competing for a spot, right? So, so right. this is a terrible atmosphere of competition that really injures these sensitive humanitarians that just want to help and heal others. So I think we need to revamp this fear-based competitive environment and we also need informed consent so that people can make a wise choice to enter this field and so parents know what they've just sent their children in to experience i was just explaining this to somebody else like parents who've lost their children to suicide in medical school and i'm on the phone with a lot of them who are absolutely distraught some of them have lost their only child to suicide in medical school now, these parents, by and large, feel when their child gets accepted to medical school, they have the impression, not being physicians themselves, most of them, they have the impression they're sending their child into the safest place in the world because if you had an asthma attack, well, you're in the hospital surrounded by doctors. Right. If you break yeah. your ankle, well, you're surrounded by doctors in the hospital. You know, they, they don't know that their mental health risks are far beyond the dangers of sending them into an active war zone under sniper fire, okay? And had they known that, the risks of suicide were so high for their child, I bet they would have interacted with them differently during medical school and sent them more care packages and phone calls and checked in on them and not, you know what I mean? It's so unfair yeah. that you don't allow people to have informed consent, including family members that would look after each other in such a different way if they felt like, you know, the child was really going into a war zone, which is what it is. It's a mental health war zone. Yeah, it, I mean, it, certainly if, if you're a parent, you're not going to think twice. Well, I mean, think twice, but you're going to be prepared on some level when your, your child goes, to, joins military or the, so the, the police department or fire department because you're at least you recognize there's danger right. you know becomes a fire you know right. the wildlife wildfire fighter yeah. yeah so don't you think that's unfair so have, like from an informed consent perspective it's so unfair yeah i do although i would say this uh only that thinking back to when i was um you know foolish and 22 uh, -huh. uh that you especially as a, a you know high achieving student you do it's hard for someone to tell you that, oh, medical school is a lot harder. You're like, I don't know. I just, I mean, I just got my bachelor's in nuclear engineering. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm like, I'm shrekin', I'm, you know, medical school, whatever. Right. Um, so I don't know that I would have believed anyone or at least thought, eh, you know, that's the other person. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think it's reasonable to have that discussion, but it's like risk for most things. Uh, even when I feel, feel like I give inform, do informed consent with people, ultimately, you know, they're, they've kind of made up their mind anyway at that point, but you're right. I mean, I think I think the fact that it 
At least it's on the if radar. At the you know what I mean? So you get depressed well, right. and, and that's, you think, and that's well, I can't be the only one. They told me coming in that 50% of Absolutely. the class will experience depression sometime during the f- four years or something. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think, and I think you're right. And I think in that sense, the informed consent be extremely useful because people would have at least heard about it and say, oh, well, they mentioned that this might be kind of tough. I, holy cow, it's really a lot worse than I thought it was going to yeah. be. And, and, and then it would be, it would alert, like you said, family members, mm-hmm. friends, and, and people within the medical schools. I mean, I look at the, the medical school where I, where I'm a, uh, an assistant clinical professor in Michigan state. And I, it's not a very, com- I went to University of Iowa and it's been some years since I was there. It's not as competitive and it seems more collaborative. Uh, and I don't know if it's, but I don't know. I mean, if it, as someone who's not gone through it, I mean, the med students seem different than they did when I was there, but that's some time has passed and, mm-hmm. and you know, I'm not in it. So that makes all the difference. So, so I, I would, when I've estimated the demographics of my show, I think about a third are physicians, a third are people who are closely associated with physician and a third are just the lay public. And so what would you, what would you say to each of those groups, uh, when in looking for ways to help physicians who might, or, or to identify physicians who might be in trouble? Well, I think if you're in medicine, like a physician yourself, you certainly have had some mental health struggles at some point in your career, whether it was just one bad case or test anxiety or whatever it is. And I feel like it would Mm -hmm. be so useful in, um, especially in orientation at the local medical school, you know, for you to speak to the students um, or just be there and let them know like, hey, you know, I... I failed my step one, you know, but Hey, I'm the chief of anesthesia now. You know what I mean? Like just let people know, like, Hey, even if there's a failure, you know, you can come out of that and you could still have a great life as a physician. Some of these people see one failure is that's it. Black or white thinking it's over. I'm never going to, you know, be able to practice medicine the way I wanted to. So I think, I think we need to have not just sort of a nurturing environment in medical school, but I think across the generations, that's the beautiful thing about my retreats that I've had that I noticed I have in these retreats from age 16, I had a pre-med there at age 16 to physicians at age 70, all in the same room. So the full life cycle of the physician was represented. And what was super cool is that the young ones, like they so want to honor the older physicians. And they're like, I want to grow up and be just like you, right? The older ones are like, Mm -hmm. Hey, don't make the mistakes I made. Here's what I suggest. (laughs) And it's like, I think we're missing that sort of life cycle mentorship in medicine that should be going on just sort of naturally maybe it's just part of our society sort of in general like the disconnection among people and you know people are you know the the way medicine is taught now that the physician's lounge is not what it used to be in hospitals or nobody's lounging i don't see a lot of lounging physicians anymore and so i just think we need to have these social connections reestablished. Uh, one thing I mentioned, by the way, that was super cool, if you are a retired physician, a lot of retired physicians might be a little bored and sort of wondering, like, what next, you know, after practicing yeah. surgery for 50 years, right? Well, what next would be, why don't you contact the dean of a local medical school and adopt a medical school class and take medical school again as sort of like, um, you know, a community member, but be there as almost like a parent 
for this class. You know what I mean? Like, so they have somebody yeah. that's not like associated with the transcript, but just like a kind person that already went through medical school that likes medical students that would just sit in on your classes. You'll get to like go through medical school again for free. <laughs> You'll get to learn like the latest <laughs> and greatest technology and what they do in medical school now that's so different than 50 years ago. Plus you can be there, especially if you have any of these maternal inclinations, you know, bring fresh baked cookies, you know, like be there as sort of like a parent figure for these medical students that really do. They're just recently out of the nest. They really do still need parenting, like good parenting and somebody to turn to that's maybe not their own parent who doesn't understand who's not a physician, you know? So that would just be a super cool idea. And then for the general public, you know, everyone's seeing physicians throughout their lives at some point in time. You know, it has been shown because physicians have actually told me that receiving thank you cards make a world of difference. You know, like if somebody did something nice for you as your physician, please thank them. And I think in written form is the best way to do it because we're the type of people, sometimes we're busy if somebody tries to think, thank us and then we run late for the next visit. Like we don't really stop and pause and appreciate what they're saying, but a handwritten card, you know, that thanks a physician yeah. that they can keep in their desk, you know, cause physicians sometimes will keep a stash of these and read, read them when they feel like a loss of meaning or despair in their professional lives, you know, to remind themselves like, Hey, I've really saved people's lives and people are thankful that I exist. And I think human beings need appreciation. And sometimes physicians feel that they don't receive the level of appreciation that keeps them going uh, just for a variety of reasons. And anesthesiologists, as you probably know, if you've been through my blog, have the highest suicide rate among all physicians and so we're number one. You're number one. And I, I would love to know, I mean, if you don't mind me interviewing you, I would love to know like Not why you think that is beyond just access to, to, to lethal means, peaceful lethal means. Um, one of my theories is that anesthesiologists are one of the least appreciated specialists. I mean, like I get thank you cards, Christmas gifts, flowers, you know, people crochet me little things, you know what I mean? Like, but I don't know if most people think about, I mean, they maybe think about thanking their surgeon for the hip replacement or whatever, but I don't know that they go back and thank the anesthesiologist for like keeping their airway open, you know, like I think there's a lack of appreciation for like maybe radiologists, anesthesiologists um, that plays into this a little bit. I think you're right. And I guess it's, you know, it's funny because so, I mean, if you, I think if you look at, um, substance abuse, uh, problems and overdose, accidental overdose, I think anesthesiologists are probably on the top two or maybe psychiatrists, I think are the, are the two most common uh, with problems. And there you could certainly say it's, it's an access issue. Um, and I think with substance abuse, with like using fentanyl, uh, or propofol, uh, we actually had a death of propofol when I was in residency of a, a kid who was two years ahead of me in training, or actually maybe it was a year ahead. Um, and I think part of it is maybe a thought that you can self-medicate because you're so used to doing it with the patients. And so maybe you accidentally, you know, give yourself a little too much because you think you can, you know, you think you can titrate medications to the right dose. But I think you're probably right. I mean, when I, it's interesting because with, I remember in my training, uh, the chief of anesthesiology said, you know, when it comes to anesthesia, your, uh, your, self-satisf- your satisfaction in your job is going to have to come from yourself mm-hmm. because you're, 
not only will you never have a patient because if patients remember you, it's generally a bad experience, like a nausea or, you know, there's some sort of outcome that was not good outside OB where usually it's there. You're, you know, you're a hero. So it's actually, I've always found it kind of fun doing OB because people are always excited to get their epidural when they're feeling better. Um, uh, but, uh, you sort of have to know that you did a good job, that the patient didn't move it during surgery, that there was ideal operating conditions. You kept the cardiovascular system stable and they woke up real quick and, uh, at the right time and they didn't have as problems with pain and nausea when they woke up. And so it, but that's a self-satisfaction because the surgeon generally just cares that things happen on time and that their operating conditions are ideal. Uh, I would say that I'm friends with most of the surgeons I work with, uh, and get along great with them. And, but their primary focus is efficiency and, uh, making sure that, that they get, they can finish what they need to finish. And so their appreciation for you is one that's not ever, uh, well, it's not ever, they don't ever speak. I mean, they, it's funny because you'll talk to them. They they will say that, and and I think everyone says that. But sometimes it feels not hollow, but it feels like it's something that people just say, you know, like it's sort of like, hey, how you doing? When you don't really care what that person how they're doing because you really don't know them when you walk by them in the hallway. Uh, so it's oftentimes like that. But it's it's interesting because when you talk to surgeons outside of the or outside of a situation outside the work situation, you know, work, they will. They will absolutely tell you, oh, I know if I've got this person in the room, oh, it's going to be just a, you know, disjointed day and rough. And I really appreciate you have you being in that room or a couple of people, but you don't really get that during that day. I mean, you kind of know that they're satisfied and that it was, that it worked, went well. Pretty, pretty, <laughs> pretty much. Well, I mean, that's, yeah, I guess that's. And, uh, I mean, we feel the same way about surgeons at times as well. I mean, we are, I, yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. So I think, but I think you're, I think you're right. I think there is that because, um, I can speak to this episode with my son losing our 14 year old son this summer. Um, the, my wife's a pediatrician, uh, and she's had, she's struggled, uh, going back to work for obvious reasons. I mean, she's, dealing with kids all the time and it's hard for her to go there without, you know, dealing with them. And so she's not really working right now. She's going to probably head back in a couple weeks after the holidays are done. Um, with, with, the with the death of my son, a tremendous outpouring of support for me from all the surgical staff. I mean, nurses, surgical techs, um, OR personnel, uh, everybody. I mean, it was, uh, it was, um, very comforting. And it was pretty amazing for me. Uh, just, I mean, we had like 1500 people at a visitation, uh, and they just came out for us. And for my wife, what was interesting is she had not as many people because she's only in a, you know, small office, but she had a tremendous outpouring of support from families and patients. And I didn't have a single patient, you know, ever contact me. Not that I would expect that or, you know, not that it bothered me. But it's interesting because I, although it's the, the, uh, the, that relationship that I think is so important with physicians and patients is one, it's almost one-sided for me because I, I've known I've done a good job and I know the patient did well. Uh, but it's one that I have to sort of just, it's just an internalized thing. And so it's just one I have to, that's just the way 
it works kind of with anesthesia. If I was in a very small town and you have to come see me four times, maybe, you know, maybe then we'd have some sort right. of different relationship, but in large, most practices, that's not the case. And so, so I think it's entirely possible and reason, and you probably could extend that to lots. Of, I mean, pathologists would be the same, right? I would think. And most service employees, ER physicians probably, uh, and 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 radiologists, like you mentioned, I think those would be probably the the four t- main patient or uh, physician types that don't have their own their own um, patient population. Constant stream of uh, appreciation coming to them. Yeah. yeah, they just yeah. So, what else do you think puts anesthesiologists at high? Of, uh, well, I think just the access to things, and I think, and I think there's a lot of time to think in in the OR, you know, because because mm-hmm. I'll tell you the the dirty secret that patients know is surgery is pretty boring <laughs> to watch, mm-hmm. and so you have plenty of time to start to think about things. And so, um, I know with with me and with uh, with Andy, I mean, I've it's there are a number of times when I have to just stop thinking about I have to like force myself to think about things because your mind can certainly wander. Because um, you know, most times, most people are fairly healthy, and the, we have plenty of monitors, and, and and things are very safe. And so, you're not. I mean, it's it's not like you're racing around trying to keep people alive all the time. For the most part, it's pretty right. boring. I mean, the whole joke in anesthesia is, it's you know, ninety nine percent boredom and one percent sheer terror. And so, you mm-hmm. you prepare yourself for those bad times, but um, for the most part, it's uneventful. Um, and so, I think that's probably part of it yeah. as well. And I and I think you know, there's probably when it comes to the collegial aspect of the profession, there is less of it in anesthesia by nature because you are, it's a solo you gig. are, I mean, I have right. plenty of partners, but we see each other during the day between cases. We see each other afterwards and I'm friends right. with many of them. And we talk and, and commiserate all the time, but you can, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've said, Oh, I didn't know you're here today <laughs> to someone who's in room uh-huh. 10 and I'm in uh-huh. room 14 or something. We just never are, times just never seemed to pass. I didn't know they were even in the hospital. And so that happens yeah. a lot. And so I think, you know, we've got families and stuff. And so you don't have an opportunity to, to meet with them afterwards. You don't certainly have lunch. I mean, I, I know when we were trying to set up this interview, I'm like, yeah, I can't really do lunch at <laughs> lunchtime interview. Fortunately, you're on the West coast because I'm right. in the OR. There's no, there's no lunchtime, at least certainly not when I'm spending right. occasionally you'll happen to be another anesthesiologist will be there. You can talk to, to him or her, but it's sort of just kind of random. And so I think there's probably, there's probably more isolation. There's probably access. There's uh, the belief that you can titrate things safely when you probably can't. And there's probably, like you mm-hmm. said, a lack of appreciation. And I never really even thought about any of those things until just now. So it, outside of just the access, well, you know, drugs are everywhere, but. Mm-hmm. And then I also thought, well, maybe sort of anesthesiologists are, and this is a theory, you know, on the low end of the totem pole and the like, OR, if something goes wrong, the surgeon screams at the anesthesiologist, right? I mean, it's kind of like, there's a pecking order. I, I don't know if this is true or not. I just felt like, wow, anesthesiologists might get mistreated and sort of. I don't think there's don't any know. question that that's the case. I and, and not honored as much as a, thir- a surgeon or that whatever, is you know? that is 100% true. And um, I and okay. I and and yeah. I work the other okay. thing along those same lines 
is just the, that, that anesthesiologists, unlike, um, you know, primary care, pediatrician, whatever, like you are locked into a hospital system generally, unless you're going to do a pain clinic mm-hmm. or something. And so I think a lot of people that go into medicine are by nature more business owner, entrepreneur types, you know, we're just like self-starters and a lot of original thoughts and, you know, things, that, you know, but to be in an employee situation, especially under that much bureaucracy so that like in a moment, I don't know if you heard what happened in, I think it was either North or South Carolina, uh, where they laid off like, you know, 80 anesthesiologists overnight, didn't have their contract mm-hmm. renewed. So what they all had to like leave town and one of them died by suicide. He had his wedding scheduled in September, you know, and, and it's just like they were replaced with CRNAs and other, I mean, so I think there's this whole abused employee sort of like under the bureaucracy loss of autonomy situation going on that impacts you in a way that it would never impact me because I'm self-employed free spirit, you know? Right. Well, I, that (laughs) is, uh, I mean, that is part of the reason I do this podcast in some ways. Mm -hmm. It's an, it's an outlet. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I'm very interested in sort of, um, healing the profession. I've talked about direct primary care, like what you do. And, um, and our group is actually independent. We're independent contractor, but we're absolutely at the whims of the the hospital. We have, we work, I work Mm -hmm. at seven different locations today. I was actually working in a hotel at a plastic surgery center. Uh, Wow. Uh, so I enjoy doing that and it's kind of like a opportunity to get out and work with the other people, but uh, there's without a doubt, I mean, all those things, are, all those things are true. I, and it's all the joke of course, is that it's anesthesia's fault, right? When anything goes wrong and, and a, a great example is that we are, we have a, our hospital sponsors a golf tournament uh, every summer. And so we are all in the line with our golf carts and getting ready to head and you sort of head to each hole. And there was a, there were a, there's a couple of anesthesiologists in front of me and they started their cart and then their golf carts, golf clubs fell off the back of the cart. And, you know, of course, then the whole line has to stop and someone yells from the mm-hmm. back anesthesia delay. And <laughs> which is really, mm-hmm. which is really funny, but it, but it has like all jokes, right? There's a little bit of, uh, you know, morbid yeah. truth to it, I suppose. So I, I guess to your, to your point, now that you're done interviewing me, <laughs> I, no, I, I think it's been a great discussion. Um, so you've, You've moved outside of, you've moved outside the employed model and, and working, working for yourself, I guess. And do you see this? Because my impression, I was just actually talking to a medical student just today who was interested in going to family practice. And I mentioned the direct primary care model and he was super excited and he kind of heard of it, which is interesting because five years ago, no one had heard of it. And he was like, yeah, that's absolutely what I want to do. But what's the risk for? Uh, for me, as far as, you know, from a debt load, because we talked about that's, as you mentioned before, that's one, a huge stressor, the financial aspect of, you know, having three, six digit medical student debt and maybe college debt. So do you see that as something that's going to continue to grow? I mean, my impression is that it's going to explode pretty soon, but what do you think? Yeah, I think basically, and by the way, I'm not like straight DPC, really. I, um, what I call it is, you know, I have an ideal clinic designed by the community, but I think what separates this from, you know, kind of all the people that are launching away out of the big box assembly line model, like literally what they're trying to do in, is get back to that relationship, right. Mm-hmm. right? They're moving from production-driven medicine to relationship-driven medicine. And you can do that with a ton of different business models and payment models, you know? I mean, but the key is, for most of these people, is you've got to unleash yourself from all this unnecessary infrastructure and overhead, okay? 
And once you do that, like, yeah, you could, I still take insurance and I was a pro provider for the first 10 years of my practice mm -hmm. and still was under contract with all these insurance companies. And I had no trouble billing them. I submitted all the claims myself. I have no staff and I got paid, you know, within two to three weeks and it was a seamless operation. And um, now I'm out of network with most insurance companies, but I still submit claims on behalf of my patients. And, you know, I still see people that are uninsured mm -hmm. for, you know, whatever they can pay sort of thing. So, so the point is, I think the, the Titanic is sort of sinking here in these big box clinics, the too big to fail or failing, yeah. <laughs> you uh -huh. know what I mean? And so I know they like to give the impression in practice management journals that they're buying up all these small practices, but there's a lot of people fleeing under the radar out into their own sort of relationship driven practices, whether they call them ideal clinics, DPC, concierge, whatever. There's a lot of different names that are thrown around, but the point is it's unsustainable to hold primary care hostage to a tertiary care delivery right. model and infrastructure right. and overhead it's just absolutely insane so it just doesn't work you know you cannot be seeing these people in seven minute increments and trying to churn people through to support the helipad and the five-story hospital <laughs> right you know, i still remember my my father was um he finished his career. He was a general practitioner. He was a DO, uh, and he kind of was a country doc for a little while until my mom couldn't handle anymore. Went to student health, and then he went out to do uh, basically occupational medicine, health physicals, and uh, which he enjoyed because he's kind of one of those guys who's one of those gotcha guys. He enjoyed like catching mm -hmm. people trying to you know scam the system. But uh, he would talk mm -hmm. about the health system that he was at. would would purchase these primary care practices that were you know one and a half, two million dollar practices, and. Not surprisingly, within about six months, they were $500,000 practices, right? Because they're like, well, I'm employed. Why would I work crazy? Because I'm not getting any benefit from it. And you're giving me all these crazy rules and stuff. Forget this. Mm -hmm. And the health system, you know, they eventually kind of abandoned it, which I think is sort of what you're starting to see now as well with these large systems. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So what would, so I guess the, uh, the books that you've written, I, I apologize. I have not read them. I've read excerpts from the suicide letters. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, you got to tell me about pet goats and pap smears. It's a great title. <laughs> and the picture is even better yeah, on the cover. Well, but what's it about? The, the, the picture is not Photoshopped. I know. That's I saw the one afterwards in that, the look inside of Amazon. That's yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, I mean, that had to do with, so basically it's a chicken soup for the soul type book. So it's 101, you know, what do I call it? The subtitle 101 medical adventures to open your heart and mind. So they're real life crazy stories that I've gotten into with my patients. And some of them are just a paragraph. Uh, most of them have cartoons or pictures in each. So it's really good bathroom reading. Okay. <laughs> it's really, and, and it's really funny to see like, say a guy on an airplane holding the book. You won't see many of that. People will think it's porn, you know, because it's, just um i think women get a pass my mom told me she said one time she goes you know if you were a male doctor who published this book you'd oh yeah the medical <laughs> you know it's like you know they would think you're doing they wouldn't want to know what you're doing in your office but yeah hey there's some benefits to being female right now <laughs> anyway i'm pushing it to the limit but yeah so it's basically the story of me loving my patients and launching my own community design clinic and the pet goat part I was looking, of course, for a catchy title, and I didn't want to just do something gimmicky and stupid, even though this could seem gimmicky to somebody who's not read the book. But during these town hall meetings, I had a number of people, when I said, design your ideal medical clinic, they literally were like, oh, it would have a pet goat, and I could bring my cat and my dog. You know, So I had a number of people like mentioned Like more than one. That's amazing. Like, the craziest thing. Yeah, more than one. Um, <laughs> And so I'm like, okay, pet goats and pap smears, that's what we'll do. 
bring your goat, right? I'll do whatever you want. It's like replace the white coat with the pet goat. You know, like it <laughs> automatically takes you out of like the professional distance that you would be in. And, you know, it, it just creates a down home sort of feel, yeah. you know? And I think by nature, I'm sort of a whimsical, fun personality, which is why it's kind of weird to be on the suicide topic because it's like, well, I can't really turn that topic into anything no, too fun no. and whimsical, you know? So I think the books balance each other, right? So the one, <laughs> Pet Coats and Pap Smear, is, that was my solution to my own suicidal thoughts is like, let me have fun as a doctor. Here's a book about how anyone can have fun as a doctor, although I don't know how you would bring a goat into an OR or whatever, but there's probably Frowned a way upon. of like getting outside. Frowned upon, yeah. Yeah, right. Frowned upon, yeah. Um, but, you know, hey, then I somehow thought by writing that book that it would like inspire so many doctors to renew their joy and find love in medicine. But it's like the day after I self-published this book, we had our third suicide in town. And I was like, well, maybe it's going to take more than pet goats to turn this around. What is this? You know what I mean? And so that's, I, you know, two days after self-publishing, you know, like I'm sitting in this memorial and I'm like, oh, okay, well, I think we have a problem yeah. here. I think that it's going to take more than a, a chicken soup for the soul book to turn this around. And so I just started diving into it. And I have another question for sure. you though. Like I totally don't believe in this notion of accidental overdoses by doctors or if, if there are, it's got to be like minuscule because it's like, what are the chances we dose drugs for a living? I can understand Michael Jackson and other people dying of accidental overdoses, but doctors, yeah. We do struggle for a living, so you've got to tell me your perspective mm. on that. Well, that's <clears throat> that's a good question, and that's what I've actually um, I don't want to say wrestled with because I because I'm thinking about the the young man who uh, overdosed in propofol uh, when I was uh, a resident. So we had our um, we had our uh, in service. Uh, so part of a anesthesia is that you take a written boards and then you also have an oral exam. And so we have mock oral exams once a year. And he had always had problem. Something always happened that made him miss work the day, the day of oral exams. Cause it's obviously very stressful. You're going into your, you know, your, um, one of your professors and you're, they're giving you a case and things start going wrong and you, f you provide answers and then those answers don't work. And then you got to come up with it. You know, you got to go to like, we always say in anesthesia, we got plan A and plan B all the way through Z, but we rarely ever get to plan, even plan B, right? And so now you're like in plan mm -hmm. F, you know? And so uh, it's very stressful. And he had an injury the year before and missed it, like kind of a strange, got cut from glass breaking or something, you know, a weird sort of thing. And then the next year mm -hmm. he was, uh, he was found, they, he didn't show up for work. They sent the police and they found him that he had, was, had overdosed from propofol. Mm -hmm. So part of me is like, well, I think you just, I could, I can envision you taking enough that you just say, I'm just going to take a nap. But if you're, mm -hmm. most anesthesiologists know that the, 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 the line between taking a nap for, um, you know, to get really sleepy and to be like apneic and to stop breathing is super small. So I think you could, I think you could argue that he might've known that he was getting too close or. Mm -hmm but he's maybe trying to walk that line. I don't know. Um, and so I, I think you're probably right. So there's all degree, you know, there's a lot of degrees. Right. There's like accidentally on purpose. Right. Right. Like absolutely like, on purpose. Right. Like and, I'm doing you know, it, but maybe it happens now, if it does. Oh, whatever. Right. I mean, I'm right. 
Russian yep, roulette. Exactly. You know? Yeah, it could definitely be something like that. And and he was a brilliant guy, but he was very troubled. I mean, I never knew he was troubled and had um, mm-hmm. had struggled with that. And and you know, then they find out he had track marks on his his feet and uh-huh. and his legs and stuff when they found him. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think you're probably right. There's probably and there's I mean, we've had. Um, you, you hear the stories of plenty of guys who they're found in the bathroom, you know, with a overdose from fentanyl uh-huh. or sufentanil. Um, and, yeah. uh, and actually, I think even when I was, it was one, some, someone who was in his sixties who had, which you don't, you know, you don't expect you, I, I don't know why that is, but, um, you kind of just think, oh, well, once people hit about 65, getting close to retirement, then they've sort of figured things out. <laughs> um, uh-huh. so I don't know. That's a. You're, you're probably right. And it's probably more a, there's certainly a, um, uh, you lose your aversion to risk and maybe at that point and, mm-hmm. and whether you're actually mm-hmm. intent on killing yourself completely or just, well, if it happens, it happens is maybe, mm-hmm. and maybe, and I don't know what yeah. degree of suicide that is, but it's, you're probably right. And you know, what's so interesting. So I have a, a, a therapist that I work with who um, helps uh, suicidal doctors. And I, I talked to her a lot about like, you know, what do you think? And what's really going on with these anesthesiologists? And she's like, well, you have to think about like, they're not really having a relationship with patients. Their relationship is with the drugs. That's the relationship. Hmm. Like they are fascinated by the drugs, by the interactions of the drugs, by, you know, they're having like the most intense relationship with drugs every day you know than any other sort of specialty you know what i mean like i can prescribe prozac but i'm not having a relationship and i'm not literally thinking about you know i mean i'm just like here's your prescription good luck you know what i mean so i don't know there's like this almost fascination with you know what happens with drugs and yeah i don't know know. and it's interesting because i've never had that sort of i mean when you're talking about that it sounds so foreign to me because i can't imagine um i've never even Ponder like what is it? Because I've never had surgery myself. Um, knock a wood. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, you know, I, I give these medications all the time. I'm not really curious what they're like. Um, so I don't. Know, maybe mm-hmm. I'm mentally healthy. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm. Mm-hmm. I'm certainly more. My focus in the room is more in interaction with the with the nurses and the surgeons and the surgical techs and um, mm-hmm. and the, the medications are. The reason I went to anesthesia is because I can solve a problem quickly and I'm, I'm impatient. Mm-hmm. So, you know, your blood pressure is mm-hmm. high. I don't want to treat you for six months. I just want to treat it right now or vice versa. Right. right. And so it just right. kind of fits my personality. Uh-huh. But, um, uh-huh. yeah, I mean, that's interesting. That's, that's an interesting, uh, thought. And I probably the case for, for some people, I would think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. if people have questions for you or they have concerns about, um, you know, how they're feeling and they want to, Get a hold. Of, you have a suicide hotline. How do they best get a hold of you, and what's the best ways to follow your work? Oh, idealmedicalcare.org. If you email me through there, sometimes even at two in the morning, I'm like calling you back <laughs> if I can read between the lines that there's something going on. Um, so, yeah, reach out to me that way, and that's probably the best way. And then I, I, I'm usually calling people back right away. And this is the funniest thing, though. Some people, when I call them back, even though they've clearly written me an email with suicidal you know, yeah, ideation right. and depression or whatever it is, if I call them back, they're like, oh, my God, I can't believe you called. <laughs> and I'm like, well, 
Well, it's super funny because uh, I'm like, but you wrote me an email, you know, and, and like basically by the time a doctor asks for help, they've needed help sure. for yeah, years. Right. You know what I mean? So it's like your index of suspicion has to be high that there's a serious problem if they're even emailing me, right? Um, unless they're just asking for business strategy advice on how to open a DPC or something like that. Which or for an interview request, right? Yeah, like yeah, yeah, something like that. But, um, but yeah, so I'll call them back. They'll be shocked. And then I'll say, well, um, you know, so when you're on call and they call you to the emergency room, like, don't you respond right away? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> I'm just sort of doing, it's not like we don't have the skill set, right? I'm just sort of doing like what doctors do when somebody right. needs help, yeah. right? And they're like, oh and then i'm like so why not apply that skill set to each other you know like that same sort of intensity that we have when there's a patient crisis right why not apply that to helping one another yeah. and uh, and they're shocked by that and then i'm like it, it, so it's again it's not going to take an nih 13 million dollar grant to solve the suicide crisis it's like bring it out of secrecy and thank you for doing this this podcast and then let's apply sort of the love and care that we have towards patients to each other mm -hmm. you know and just see what happens i bet it'll be really successful and, and i would and i would say <laughs> uh if you're the least bit interested in this subject or um to follow your work i think i've by just emailing you this question, I got put on your email list and I got that email where you discuss the uh, thank you cards to physicians. And I thought it was really interesting. And I think it'd be whether you're in healthcare or not, I think that's a really great thing to, um, to follow. And so I'd highly recommend getting involved there. And then your books sound super interesting. I'll have to check them out at some point. Thanks so much. Yeah. And, and because it's the holidays, I don't know when you're airing this or, in two or days. whatever, but you know, feel <laughs> In a few days. Yeah. So I would encourage people like, you know, after you open your Christmas Hanukkah presents or whatever, and you're sitting around with your family, hey, get out some paper, write some thank you cards, even one or two lines to like the emergency room doctors and nurses and others who are like, you know, in the hospitals, unable to be with their families, you know, for the holidays and let them know like, hey, I really appreciate that you guys are here for us, you know, bring them a bring them some cookies, you know, uh, people don't think of doing that, but it's like really the simple things that are going to change the culture. I of think you're absolutely right. And actually that that's a good, I, I think that might be something I'll do for the people who took care of me when I came to the emergency room a, a couple months ago. Um, so Aww. thanks. Yeah. Thanks for that. And, and let us not forget the yeah. anesthesiologist. <laughs> if you can figure out who we are, especially male anesthesiologists need love notes. Right? I, I would never turn them away because I would I don't have many. <laughs> so I I did have one. My my wife's uh, one of her um, someone she works with insisted on having me uh, do her epidurals. In fact, she didn't care what OB was on that day. So that was a pretty unusual sort of request. And so the OB's like, oh, I never wow. had this before. I was oh. like, I know it's kind of weird for me too. <laughs> it's really sweet that she was oh, doing when I was on. But sweet. anyway, thank you so much for uh -huh. I appreciate this time. I sorry I went over a little bit, but it's. It's uh, it's been really a real pleasure, and I hope that we can we can have, inform a few more people about physician suicide and and that it's a, a real problem, and to celebrate our humanness. Uh huh. And to love each other and create the culture that we want uh, with our peers in the hospital. It's not that hard, and we don't need to get committee approval to send a thank you note or give somebody a hug. That's very right? true. Thank you so it. much. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. 
If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. <laughs>